Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. And today, we got a special episode for you guys today. Not one of our bonus episodes, but our regular Come Follow Me weekly episode. Only this time, we are going to be once again joining our sisters over at the Faithful Feminist Podcast. So let's get to it. Hi, I'm Channing. And I'm Elise. And this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. But this is not just any Come Follow Me podcast. We do things a little differently here. We offer approachable feminist interpretations of the Come Follow Me manual for those who want to study and understand the scriptures in a framework of equality, social justice, and sisterhood. We're here to show you all the really good ways faith and feminism work together to illuminate and deepen the gospel experience. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs, so join us today for a conversation about 3rd Nephi, chapters 17 through 19, for the date September 28th through October 4th. We're so glad you're here today. And we're not just glad that you're here today, we're also glad because we have two of our favorite, favorite friends and fellow podcasters, the guys from Beyond the Block. We have Brother Jones and Brother Knox. We'd love it if you could introduce yourselves. What up? Um, This is Brother Jones, James Jones. Um, Yeah, co-host of Beyond the Block, co-producer. Yeah, I'm mostly just here for timekeeping and moderation and making sure Derek doesn't do any jokes. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm obviously the Derek. Uh, my name is Derek Knox, and I'm a scholar, educator, and comedian. Even though James won't let me put that on the business card, and I, um, I just love talking about the scriptures. Maybe too much, but it's so great that you saved us a seat on the soft chairs. Yeah, I feel like I'm crashing Relief Society right now. Feels a little, feel a little deviant, but also feel excited. It's great. It's a good really feeling. Society is the best place to be. Really is. Well, we're excited to have you here today because based on what we've talked about and based on what's coming in the scriptures today, it's going to be a really insightful and delightful conversation. So we're just going to get right into it. So we're going to start in chapter 17. And in this chapter, I found most striking the way that Christ ministers to the body. Um, And not just like the body of the people, but the actual physical mortal body. And so I wanted to just go through, not necessarily verse by verse, but example by example of all of the different ways that Christ addresses um, the health and well-being of our physical bodies. And so it doesn't take very long for him to get into this because we literally start in verse two, where Christ has finished preaching to the people um, from the words of Isaiah. And he kind of looks around the crowd and he says, I perceive that ye are weak and ye cannot understand all my words, which I speak unto you at this time. So then he says, therefore, go ye to your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said and prepare your minds for the morrow. And when I think about this, I think Jesus is just kind of this like, I think of him as a really tender teacher where he kind of looks at his class and he's like, I can see y'all are exhausted. So why don't we just go home and rest? Because I know you're not going to be able to absorb all of the things that I want to share with you today. And I think that that's our first example that we're provided with in the scriptures is that Christ has an awareness of 
physical exhaustion and the limits of our own mortality, which of course he would know, like he wasn't human that long ago at this point. Right. <laughs> um, so I loved that. And then if we just keep continuing in the chapter, this is where things really start to pick up. In verse 5, it says that Jesus cast his eyes round about again on the multitude and beheld that they were in tears and did look steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with him or with them. And he said, behold, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. And I kind of wanted to break these two verses down. But before I do that, I wanted to note the second um, theme or second condition of mortality that I think Jesus addresses here. And that is the human need for connection and belonging. I think that Christ looks out on the crowd and says, I can see you're tired, but I can also see that you need more, that you need to feel connected, that you need to feel like. I belong to you and you belong to me. And so therefore I will tarry with you a little longer. And I really wanted to break down in verse six, this word compassion and um, especially how Christ uses it. My bowels are filled with compassion. And I did a little bit of research on this word just because I was curious about it because I feel like it shows up quite a bit in scripture, not just in the book of Mormon. So the Hebrew word for compassion comes from the root word called rechem. I hope I said that right, but if not, look it up, R-E-C-H-E-M. And this translates directly to the word womb, as in like the womb that babies are born from. And I feel like not only is this strikingly feminine, but actually accompanying the word womb are beautiful images and actions of nurturing, of cleansing, of caring, of insulating and of living. And I also found it, I am going through a yoga teacher training right now. And so we're studying the different energetic areas of the body. And this same area where the womb is in the female body is actually the second chakra area, which is present in both men and women. And this is the area of the body that um, holds our emotion and um, controls our emotion. And so I found it just, um, really fascinating that Christ would say my bowels or the same area of the body are filled with compassion because this is the point in the body that governs our emotions. And then going along with that, I just couldn't help but notice when we get to the next chapter and we're talking about the sacrament, I think it's really interesting to note that the word compassion comes from the word womb. And then we get into the sacrament, which talks, which focuses mainly on Christ sharing his body um, to nourish and carry us through this life, which I think that imagery carrying over and talking about the sacrament is just like, I, it was so unignorable as a feminist reader, like, oh, that's like very inherently feminine. Um, so I was just, oh, so excited, especially having been through that experience of like pregnancy and birth for myself, being able to see Christ relate to me in that way was really, um, just empowering and really special for me. So I was excited to see that come up. I just wanted to say real quick, uh, the only reason I knew about that whole second chakra business is because of the avatar. So like, oh, no. if <laughs> I know I said I was done, but you know, I, love it. I, I wasn't. As, as soon as you said that, I was like, I don't know much about <laughs> yoga, but I know about chakras because of the yep. avatar. And now I have another gospel parallel that I can 
use for the avatar. So thank you for that, Channing. Yes, you're welcome. And also amen to everything you said, because as soon as you said that whole piece about the body and the compassion, like with the sacrament, I was like, oh my gosh, it just occurred to me that literally this whole experience of like feeding somebody with your body, caring somebody with your body, using Mm -hmm. your body to otherwise care for somebody and, uh, and sucker them and sustain them is a very like, Oh my gosh, that is the most, I I don't know why it took me this long to like see it, but hearing you articulate it like that, I was like, yo, Christ was a total feminist, like straight up. I mean, you you knew it already, (laughs) but like to this level to where he is literally taking something that is, you know, ordinarily ascribed to the feminine as not just an essential part of the worship experience and the most important thing that we do on Sunday, but just, you know, it just shows you how involved, I guess, motherhood, femininity, generally speaking, is in the divine. Because, like, that is not something that that is that is just not something we are conditioned to think about is how divine and how feminine the the act of the sacrament is. Yeah, and I've noticed that when you when you bring out the fact that Christ transgressed gender categories and roles, it actually helps everybody. It helps people of all genders. Right. Well, and I think um going along with that, Derek, is that this shows that you don't have to be a woman or identify as female to be able to participate in that action of nurturing and of sharing and caring and suckering for others. Like you don't have to have a womb or female genitalia to participate in that action because everyone can have bowels filled with compassion. The final condition of mortality that I think Christ addresses in chapter 17 is sickness. Um, In verse 7, he says to the crowd, Have ye any that are sick among you? Bring them hither, and I will heal them. And it came to pass that when he had said this, all the multitude with one accord did go forth with their sick and their afflicted, their lame and with their blind and with their dumb, and with all of them that were afflicted in any manner. And he did heal them every one as they were brought forth. And I think that this perfectly illustrates that Jesus is someone who understands the importance of the body so much that he makes them perfect right now, in this moment. And I love that there's no condescending tone. He doesn't have to check your recommend at the door. There's no worthiness interviews. There's absolutely no limitation to the miracles that he is giving. There's only grace, there's only mercy, only loving kindness, and that same compassion and devotion. And so what this tells me is two things. One, that Jesus absolutely will meet us where we are in every moment. And two, that this life is worth living fully. Jesus didn't just look at them and say like, oh, your body's not perfect. Don't worry about it. Like in the resurrection, it'll be all better. He says, no, it matters right now. And so we're going to take care of it right now. Oh, and the last thing, which I also could not get over when I realized this, was in verse 10, after Christ had healed everyone, it says that they did all, both they who had been healed and they who were whole, They bowed down at his feet and did worship them, and as many as could come for the multitude did kiss his feet, insomuch that they did bathe his feet with their tears. And I was thinking about this, and I'm like, where else in the scriptures have I seen someone come and bathe Jesus's feet in tears? And I was like, it's Mary. Mary did that. 
And so I just couldn't help but wonder if maybe Christ thought about her in that moment and like was just filled with so much love and friendship in that. I don't know, just being reminded of that. So I'm always looking for opportunities for women to show up in the scriptures. And I'm like, I think this might be another like instance. So that was really exciting. I'm glad that you talked about the way that Jesus invites everyone to come unto him. And I was also thinking about the role of the people who carry both the suffering and the afflicted and the people who carry the children and bring them to Jesus. And I'm just wondering, and I wanted to ask everyone, if we're thinking about the work of social justice and liberation, what is our do we have a responsibility to carry people that are afflicted and suffering and who are just so filled with sorrow and so hopeless? Like, is there a responsibility that we have to do what we can and to carry them to wholeness or um, sanctuary or refuge? What are we doing here? If not that, at least just, yeah. if I can just highlight what we're all doing here for a moment, that is the... That is one of the biggest reasons that I approached Derek about starting Beyond the Block was because I wanted there to be a space for us to do that kind of work. And Derek and I are fortunate in that we occupy many uh, positions of privilege, you know, but we also our marginalized identities have put us in certain situations where we see uh, certain things and we see things that we want to change. And uh, both of us, as a result of our study, as a result of our work, but also as a result of the grace of God, we've been allowed to stay here and to continue both our experience of worship and our experience of ministry, both at church and, you know, here doing the podcast. Um, we, I, I don't know if we both do this because we feel a responsibility. I'll just speak for myself in saying that I feel like because the Lord has gifted me with this resilience and with these resources and with my certain privileges, I feel like I do have a responsibility to do some of that work of caring simply because I can do it. And one of the greatest things and one of the most Christ-like things I think I can do is give access or at least create the means whereby others can receive access to, uh, you know, to the atonement of Christ or to the worship experience and the ministry experience that I have. One thing that I'm really grateful for and you guys are highlighting the healing experience is Jesus said he was going to do this after he, you know, after that great act of violence that he committed just a few chapters ago. He said, won't you come unto me so I can heal you? He said he was going to he said he was going to do all this. But you also got to remember what the act of healing does in addition to just physically healing people. There is a spiritual and emotional and communal aspect to the healing exercise as well. Not only were these people uh, made to be able to walk again, made to be able to speak and hear and see again, they were given access to worship and ministering experiences that were not before available to them. That is extremely powerful in this whole thing. Like this, that is one of the bigger blessings of the healing. And I think that this is something that only gets briefly highlighted when Jesus does it. Um, I just remember reading last week, I think, in the book of Mark, one of Jesus's first miracles is to heal a leper and he has to touch the guy to heal him. Um, now that's 
that that has its own implications. But the whole thing is that Jesus told this guy to go show himself to the priest because as soon as he did that, he was welcomed back into society. He was able to worship again. Like Jesus did more than cleanse that guy. He gave him access to worship experiences so that he could uh, embrace the gospel in a way that other people were able to that he wasn't before. So to get back to the, this original question of caring, I, I feel like part of what we are doing here is, uh, you know, our way of caring is that we provide a way for people to engage the gospel and access it in ways that they were not able to do it before. So the short answer is yes. I feel like we do have that responsibility because we have these resources and we have, you know, whatever gifts and talents that we have. And I believe to glorify God, that is what he would ask us to do, what he would want us to do. Yeah, th- that's a really good point. And I, I share your your enthusiasm for bringing people. Now, I'm really interested in putting this text in conversation with our analysis of disability. Because some people may jump to this idea of, oh, if we've got disabled people, the whole point is to fix them and make like make them like us. And disabled folks are some of the most marginalized in any society and in the church in terms of access, in terms of visibility, in terms of being in the decision-making roles. So wrestling with this text, I would say a couple of things. I would center in on the word affliction and then hold up the value of self-identification and self-advocacy. If someone believes themselves to be afflicted, like if I... If I got an illness and I wanted to recover, that's my ability to name that. And so I would say, you can't define someone who's disabled and say you're afflicted and you need to have, you need to get fixed. And the second value is, of course, consent. Like I imagine that you needed to have the consent of the people that you're bringing to Jesus. You don't just bring them and they're like, we don't want to be healed. But I'm assuming that within this context, the way it was celebrated is, I'm, I'm assuming that, that this was not only self-identified affliction, but also something that the people really wanted. I think that, thank you for saying that, both of you. I think in this example too, it's really clear that we are not acting as the savior or a savior, and yet we're bringing them, if they consent and if they desire, to the savior. But we're not the ones that kind of swoop in and save the day and try and think that we know what's best and the way that we think they should be healed, be healed. I think Jesus is the one that speaks with them and talks with them and doesn't just heal them of their afflictions, but also like you were saying, James opens up a much more enriched possibility for them to live a full fledged authentic life in ways that perhaps they were excluded from in the past. Yeah, and that brings us to the warning of of not being a white savior because some of us, it, when we're at the beginning stages of learning about racial justice, we're like, oh, I feel so bad about this. I want to go fix it, fix this, and I want to fix black people. But that's what we as white people should do is just stop hurting black people and and trust the, the process. also want to bring back this whole thing of uh, – when Christ said, will you not come unto me that I might heal you? Like, I have a feeling he was speaking more to, and even not necessarily of physical healing. He wanted to do something for these people that was going to enrich their experience and their ability to come unto him. I am quite certain that when he said heal in that moment, while he could very well have not been eliminating the possibility of physical healing, he wanted these people to be spiritually healed and emotionally healed, that he wanted them to be in a position 
where they could embrace him more fully. So like whatever that looked like, I'm sure was what these people were willing to embrace at this particular point, especially when we read earlier in the chapter that these people looked on Jesus as if they would have him stay longer. These people clearly wanted him there and they wanted to embrace him to some degree. Therefore, Jesus was willing to embrace them and he was willing to heal them. This experience, this is what makes the experience as we were just talking about consensual to me and also more of a, uh, more of a spiritual exercise in the healing process than a, than a physical one, though that is a necessary component to this. You know, I also want to offer up something about the theology of disability that may help us here. It's looking at the Exodus narrative and what happened when Jesus, when the, uh, when the Lord called Moses to be a prophet and he first said, no, I have a, I have a speech impediment. I have this disability. And so this is not going to work. And the Lord had a couple of options there. One would be to say, oops, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to use you then. Or it could be, oops, I'm just going to ma magically fix your disability. And the Lord chose neither one. The Lord chose to provide a reasonable accommodation in the person of Aaron that by working together, it made it accessible for Moses to be the prophet of the people. If I could say something about this compassion of Christ real quick while we're, uh, while we're talking about this still. Something that I really like in this chapter is that as soon as Jesus, I mean, you know, Jesus says, like, I'm going to go, I'm going to send back into heaven, go, going to go do Jesus stuff or whatever it is. He looks on the people and he's like, I, you know, I see you guys want me to stay. What else can I do for you? And then you just see this string of events that happens as a result of Jesus exercising compassion. He stays with the people to heal their sick. He blesses them and prays with them. He calls the children to come unto him. He prays with them. He blesses them. Angels come out of heaven. Fire encircles them. People start speaking in tongues. He minister. The angels minister. Next chapter, he's instituting the sacrament. Like so much stuff happened because of Jesus exercising compassion, like so many incredible and uh, amazing things. And we got to make space like that, that to me, as soon as I read that, I was like, we got to really make space for more compassion in our lives to people who either don't think like us, don't love like us, don't look like us, or just need attention in some way so that amazing things like this can break forth. Jesus even goes as far as to say, people in Jerusalem didn't experience this. Because uh, they didn't exercise the faith that you guys were exercising. And uh, this is another opportunity for us to talk about uh, faith here. But I just wanted to highlight just how much incredible things and how many great blessings were able to come to the people of Nephi because Jesus Christ exercised compassion. Like, what can we really do for our church? What can we do in our ministries? What can we do in our personal lives, in our families, in our communities? If we just exercise some Christ-like compassion. Could we get angels to minister? Could we heal folks? Could we, could we speak in tongues again? I don't know. Just th this, this is just the kind of thing I was thinking about. Like what kind of incredible things could we accomplish? Can we do if we exercise this kind of compassion? I think that's a great question. And I also think it ties up nicely with Channing's, some of Channing's earlier points about the body, because Oftentimes, spiritual experiences can feel like they transcend the body, and yet none of these things could have happened without 
without being in a body, without Christ being there in the flesh. And so I think there is something beautiful when we stop and think about the ways that we can care and be so compassionate in a way that ushers in these transcendent, holy, divine experiences in a way that doesn't negate the body, but in a way that celebrates the body and says, thank you for allowing me to feel this way. I can't experience spiritual things without my body and without my physical senses, even if it's beyond words, even if it's beyond comprehension. Yeah, I think there's a profound resonance between Jesus living in a body for a time and then being responsive to the needs, as we talked about earlier, of those who who are in a body. And I want to talk a little bit about this responsiveness because Jesus adapts to the needs of the people. A lot of Latter-day Saints just think, well, God knows everything and we just got to get in line and be obedient and, and we're like computers that get programmed and God, God's got everything. But we realize here that Jesus has this spirit of dealing with stuff and changing plans when the plans need to be changed. And it was manifest to Jesus that, whoops, we've got to deal with this and I've got to switch gears. And I think that could even impact our prayer life. Like how, how more much more valiant and powerful would our prayers be if we had this understanding that oh look god's gonna change for us and this reminds me of two uh women in the new testament who changed jesus's mind one is mary in chap in john chapter two at the wedding of cana where jesus is like nope it's not my time and then mary's like yeah it is and you're gonna do this and then of course there's the syrophoenician woman in mark 7 and matthew 15 which we talked a little bit earlier before we started recording. And you've got this idea of Jesus saying, oh no, I've got to change my plan. And so I want to offer this, an extended analogy about, you know, we have, we've heard of these, this concept of cafeteria Mormons, like people picking and choosing. And, and that, I think that gets used abusively against people who are just trying to do the best they can. And what I want to name is a different type of analogy um, and a different sort of dichotomy rather than dividing people into cafeteria Mormons and then faithful Mormons I'm gonna offer something else but I need to talk a little bit about the the crisis at Mount Everest and there's a there's a problem here because originally Mount Everest was this really pure pristine amazing snow-capped tall mountain but now with the accessibility of more people being able to climb the mountain we've got a problem because this is above the line where uh, it's above the elevation so that it's uh, it's frozen year-round. So nothing melts, nothing. Uh, and, and what happens is people poop. And we've now got hundreds and hundreds of people going up the mountain every year and pooping on the mountain. And it doesn't sound like I'm making a joke, but I, I promise Brother Jones <laughs> not to make any jokes. And there's a problem here because the poop freezes. And it does not return to nature. You got piles of poop on, and it, and it's a mess. And and it's actually an, an instance of environmental racism because you've got rich Westerners paying thousands and thousands of dollars to go up this mountain, and then their poop slides down the mountain into the indigenous people's villages, and that's not okay. But it it makes a mess for everything. And I think the the point of this analogy is this is what happens when you don't deal with stuff, right? It just sits there and then you step in it and it piles up. Whereas if you poop in the middle of a rainforest, there's no problem with that because it will return to nature very, very quickly. So I'm going to give 
my analogy is I'm going to talk about rainforest Mormons versus Everest poop Mormons because there's some of us <laughs> who deal with the stuff when it comes up just like Jesus did here. Something happened and he was resilient to the needs of the problem and he realized there's a problem and I'm going to fix it. And there are a lot of saints out here. Um, I want to name this, especially as we're preparing for general conference that think, oh, just God's got everything and we just have to sit back and get spoon fed. I'm like, that's not the God that I know from the scriptures or my real life. And so a lot of those people are the Everest poop Mormons. They're like, I'm not going to deal with something like we don't have to change. Like, we'll just let it pile up and then put out pristine photos of Mount Everest and say, look, there's no poop here. But I'm the type of person, I'm not a cafeteria Mormon at all. I'm one of these rainforest Mormons that, like, we're going to deal with stuff. And it may not be pretty in the moment, but it's better than having it all pile up. And, and I don't know if you've been to a Boston winter. Like, the snow when it first falls is pretty, but then people sludge in it, and then it gets brown and, and gross and icky and slushy. And, like, yeah, so that's kind of my analogy here of, of not allowing the people who are labeling others as cafeteria Mormons to to put the lines on the game field, right, on the, on the field of play. Like, we need to take charge of this is how we draw the lines and this is the game we're playing. Like, I'm going to be a rainforest Latter-day Saint. If I may add a quick tangent, I just wanted to say, as far as cafeteria Mormons go, we we already pick and choose when we follow the word, like we're all cafeteria Mormons. If we're really going to play that game, you know what I'm saying? We pick the council. We are going to follow from the scriptures, from the prophets. We pick what we hear. We pick what, what we're going to follow from the law, from our boss, from our healthcare providers, from our parents, our spouses. We pick everything that we're going to do. You know what I'm saying? Just, I never liked the insult or the pejorative of cafeteria Mormon as if we're not already. We're not all doing that. You know what I'm saying. We're we're all doing that mess. Right. Especially the other side. You can tell a lot by them by what they pick and choose. They, For real. They they don't they don't like the inclusive parts of the scripture. You racist, but you're gonna get mad at me for saying hell. What's and, wrong with you? Yeah. Or they, um, or they they don't look at the parts of the scripture that condemn the rich and condemn the powerful. Mm -hmm. They pick and choose mm -hmm. away from those. Yep. Sorry, that was a tangent, but I just needed that mm -hmm. out there. Since somebody said cafeteria yes. Mormon, I was like, let's talk about it then. Well, instead of saying cafeteria Mormon, we could just talk about the poop catastrophe. That's too long, Derek. I, but whatevs. It's not going to catch. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think to um, that point, not the point, the example of the Syrophoenician woman actually, I think, pushes back against cafeteria Mormonism because... I wish I had, I am not at my house right now. I have a book that has a wonderful essay on the Syrophoenician woman. I will link it in our show notes so that our listeners can find it too. But the Syrophoenician woman actually calls Jesus out on his poop catastrophe. Well, one way to interpret the story is that the Syrophoenician woman approaches Jesus and asks for more inclusivity in the way that the gospel is being shared with others. Because at this time in Jesus's ministry, the gospel is only being shared with the Jews and the Syrophoenician woman was a Gentile. And um, one feminist interpretation of this is to say that the Syrophoenician woman pushed back against that and asked for blessings for herself. That that courage and um, 
breaking of social understanding between the two groups was actually what influenced Jesus's understanding to open up the gospel to all the world and encourage more inclusivity in that way too. And so I I don't know, maybe I'm about to say something super radical on the podcast, but maybe the Syrophoenician woman called Jesus out on his own cafeteria Mormonism. <laughs> so praise be, Syrophoenician woman, we love you. <laughs> So then if we turn over to chapter 18, this is where Jesus institutes the sacrament with the people. And I think it's important when we think about the sacrament as communion and think about the sacrament as God being incarnated in flesh in Jesus. And I think it's important for us to pair chapter 17 and 18 together because before Jesus teaches the people about the sacrament and delivers the sacrament, he finds it important that everyone needs to be brought together. Everyone needs to be in one physical body of Christ before they can partake of the perhaps spiritual body of Christ, right? So we have the sick and afflicted. We have those who were carrying them. We have the children. Everyone is here. And now Jesus says, okay, now that we're communing together, let me teach you about the sacrament or communion. And at least for me in the LDS church, I know that we are taught that the bread and the water represent Christ's body and blood, but in other religions, it's not so much representative as it is literal. And I think there is something that we can learn from this understanding of like the bread being flesh and the water being blood, but not in a suffering way, because I think we can often get trapped and think that the sacrament is only about remembering the suffering that Jesus underwent in his physical body. But there are some interpretations out there that are also that also bring Mary and a feminine aspect into the sacrament, because Mary was the one who nourished Jesus with her own flesh and her own blood and her own milk. And now through the sacrament, Jesus nourishes us and Jesus heals us with his body and his blood. And we can see this this Marian theme all throughout the sacrament. And I think in this way, the sacrament becomes less of a remembrance of suffering and a forgiveness of sin. And it becomes a celebration of what it means to be human and what it means that God was so compassionate and loved us enough to come and be in a physical form alongside with us. Never occurred to me that like when I partake of the sacrament, there's a little bit of Mary in there as well. You know what I'm saying? Just when there's more than just Mary too. I think when we think about the Syrophoenician woman that we were talking about previously, um, I wanted to read a passage from a book chapter called women, Eucharist and good news. So the Syrophoenician woman is identified by her ethnicity and religious beliefs She is also portrayed as a woman who is desperate to obtain healing for her daughter. In reply to the woman's request for healing, Jesus introduces the image of bread when he argues that the children's bread should not be given to the dogs. The response of the woman pronounces a claim on at least the crumbs. And for the only time in this gospel, Jesus has been matched and even bettered in the context of a challenge. This woman's successful reply to Jesus' words enables her to obtain a share of the bread for herself and for her daughter. 
And it's significant to note that the woman has to work harder than any other person who requests healing in Mark's, in Mark's gospel. Only the Syrophoenician woman has to convince Jesus that after the initial request for healing, she has to struggle to be included within the sacrament, within this community, who are already nourished by the bread. And the success of her struggle highlights that women and Gentiles and people who are excluded from the sacrament, they shouldn't be excluded from the access to the bread, from this nourishment, from this healing. And also that women can take a leading role in providing the bread for those in need of nourishment. And I stunned by this passage, but I think it pairs up really nicely with what comes later in the chapter where Jesus cautions people to not let people take of the sacrament unworthily. And I think the Syrophoenician woman says, no, no, no. This communion, this nourishment and healing of the body and blood of Jesus, that's for everyone. As I think of my own experiences, like taking the sacrament, but also being denied access to the sacrament, it actually reminds me of, um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with Nadia Boltz-Weber. She is on Instagram as the Sarcastic Lutheran, and I love her. Um, But one of the things that she had mentioned probably a couple of months ago is that the responsibility of Christians in general is not to bar certain people from coming to Christ, but that our message should always be forgiveness and that the focus needs to always be on saying, you're forgiven, welcome to the fold. You're forgiven, welcome to the fold. And I think sometimes, or at least in my own lived experience, there have been times where I have desperately needed that forgiveness and that welcoming back into the fold and haven't received it. And how striking the contrast is to the times where I've needed that and have. And how life-changing or not one of those has been. And just this idea of, I don't know, I can't imagine in my own understanding of God and my own understanding of Jesus of ever being turned away. And I think that that is the radical message of love. And that is like the good news of the gospel. And so I think just some, I just wonder sometimes in our practice of Christianity, if we've lost focus of what the actual good news is, the forgiveness and the welcoming and the inclusion. That reminds me of something I really wanted to address when I came across the institution of the sacrament in this chapter. Because just a few chapters ago, actually in 3 Nephi chapter 11, when Jesus first makes his appearance and introduces himself, he says at the end of that chapter, this is my doctrine, and do not add to it, do not take away from it, this is my doctrine. And he basically talks about faith Uh, repentance and baptism as being the fundamental parts of his doctrine and uh, what what I remember talking about when uh, Derek and I discussed that episode is just how much of a tendency there is for Christians to add and take away stuff Um, one of my favorite questions to ask when I was a missionary was why do you think there are so many churches and inevitably somebody would be like well it doesn't matter we all worship the same God And I'm just like, well, what is God? Who is he? What does he want us to do? How do we get back to him? And uh, then eventually we would get to the point where we're just like, okay, there's a lot of churches because we all believe fundamentally different things about the nature of God and Christ, what he taught, what their doctrine is, what they expect of us, yada, yada. 
And I was just like, so this is the problem. We have effectively changed the doctrine of Christ in different ways. And one of the first things Jesus Christ says when he arrives is, this is my doctrine. Don't mess with it. Like that is the first thing he says. And then we get to this part where Jesus really got mad at people in the New Testament for changing his doctrine, changing his words, changing what the commandment to love others looked like. And I feel like we might fall into that trap occasionally as members of the church where we fundamentally have made God in our own image by saying we are dispossessing or disenfranchising entire populations of people as an act of love when Jesus Christ himself probably would not have done that or would not have exercised love in that way. All this to say is that now that we're talking about the sacrament, this is Jesus Christ's effort to continue reinforcing what his doctrine is. Now, I I just wanted to point out that even though Jesus Christ has effectively named what his doctrine was, we are seven chapters later, and now he's instituting the sacrament. What exactly do we think he's trying to reinforce here? I have an idea, like I see it early in this chapter. Well, he says, This shall ye do in remembrance of my body, which I've shown unto you, and it shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. So I'm thinking to myself that this is an effort to reinforce the faith part of the doctrine and uh, probably the repentance part of the doctrine as well, because that is what the sacrament is for, in my opinion. It's a fundamental part of my repentance process. But I just wanted to ask you guys if you feel like there's a piece of the sacrament that reinforces uh, Christ's doctrine of faith, repentance, and uh, and baptism. Well, I think I might just bite at the low-hanging fruit um, in that question is that the sacrament does remind us of baptism in that we continually get that chance at repentance and by partaking in it, like this is literally the primary answer, right? By partaking in the sacrament, we participate in a weekly ritual of repentance or have the opportunity to anyway. So I think in that way, it does function as a remembrance of the true gospel of Christ, which is why it's never made sense to me that we exclude people from it. (laughs) But that's just my own personal opinion. (laughs) Yeah, well, I want to talk a little bit about the stewardship of the sacrament because Jesus teaches something two different things that are in slightly in tension with one another but i think you can resolve them when you look at the final results one is he says that church leaders should make sure that people do not partake of the sacrament unworthily and then he also says even if people don't partake of the sacrament make sure that everyone's welcome there in the meeting that don't don't deny anyone that you should not forbid anyone from coming and both of those are aligned towards the goal of repentance. Um, what, and that's the whole point of what Jesus says himself of denying people the sacrament is to lead them into a state of repentance. And that's the whole point of allowing anyone to come into the meeting is to bring them into a state of repentance. And I just want a little bit of talk talk about, the, how, about how this power or stewardship of the sacrament gets deployed. One of the most important questions we can ask is who has the power and how is it being used? And I just want to tie this together with an intertextual echo in 1 Corinthians 11, which was a very divided church and was divided on lines of privilege. You had people with higher wealth, education, and access 
And what happened is that they had all the food and they like they got drunk and they had a big party and they left out the poor people. And that's the context in which Paul says, you can't do that, you know. And when he says in 1 Corinthians 11 not to take partake of the sacrament unworthily, that's sandwiched in between these two warnings of don't do this. Don't uh, don't just have a feast and leave people out. Don't don't do that. And I think that is a really key insight is in that context, the only unworthiness that Paul seems to even have on his mind is the act of people with privilege and power excluding others. And I think that's the unworthiness that Paul is wanting people to recognize. He says, you, you, you're not even recognizing the body. And I think if we bring that into this text, it gives us a very interesting result about what unworthiness, in my view, would be um, significant enough to withhold the sacrament from someone. And this gets back to my how I do my ministry and what I think the point of religion is. And there's sort of three parts to this. One is those who are comfortable need to be afflicted. Those who are afflicted need to be comfortable. And everyone needs to be afflicted by my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Obviously, I'm. I'm. Uh, really, it's the first two are the oh poor James, the <laughs> poor James. But there's there's something really biblical about the first two parts of that, and I think the desire to, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable is rooted in Mary, Mary's Magnificat in Luke one. It's about casting down the mighty from their thrones and filling those who are hungry, and I think this. This sort of twofold ministry is also rooted in the way Christ, he says, love one another as I have loved you in John 13, 34. And how did he love other people? He called out people. Um, someone accused me of name calling on Facebook, and I didn't respond to it because I'm 10 steps ahead of him too. But Jesus, when it was appropriate, he engaged in name calling. He said in Luke chapter 13 about Herod, he called him a fox. He says, go and tell that fox. And so, like... I just want to put that out there for the record that sometimes name-calling is Christ-like, especially if you have power and privilege and you are hurting other people. Name-calling is appropriate. But anyway, let me get back to this sacrament thing. I would feel comfortable if I were a church leader and someone is engaging in manifest racism. I'm going to say, nope. Nope, you got to repent, and, and this, is, this is your wake-up thing. I want you to have the sacrament, but I want you to have the sacrament when we have brought you back into moral inclusion. And that, I think, gets back to some of the church leaders want to use the, the stewardship of the sacrament to afflict the afflicted. That is, people who are LGBT, people who are on the margins of the church, people who don't fit in some way or another, then church leaders will deny them the sacrament. I'm like, no, that's not the right way. You should use your discernment and stewardship in order to afflict the comfortable. Those who are unrepentantly participating in the work of white supremacy in this country or um, or any of these other isms that that need to be addressed I think those people I would feel way comfortable saying look you're you're not part of the body of Christ if you are hurting other people in this manifest way and that's I think how I would use first Corinthians 11 to sort of give context to this about what really does unworthiness mean and is it ever appropriate 
to deny someone the sacrament. Is it okay for me to disagree a little? Yes. I think Yes. I think I I I think I just struggle with the idea of exclusion at all. When I, just because Okay, I'm just going to say it and I like hope that you guys will like talk to me and like we can work through it together cuz I might not be right. I struggle with the idea of exclusion just based on the fact that I have experienced that for myself and I would feel uncomfortable excluding to like teach a lesson or to say that somehow I know better. That's not to say that racism and sexism and homophobia and all of those things are not bad because they absolutely are. And I do think that we need to address those in the church and that we can do it effectively, but I'm unsure that excluding from the sacrament would be the answer. Um, I don't know. How do you guys, how do you feel about it? I, I don't know. It just doesn't sit right with me, but it might just be because maybe I'm not understanding fully. I think I was going to ask a similar question. Is the role or purpose of the sacrament to like gauge worthiness or do we partake of the sacrament because we are trying to remember Jesus and trying to be welcomed into the body of Christ? Like I'm wondering, can we still call people to repentance and also say like, you really need the sacrament though too, because like you need, you need Christ's nourishment to fill you. So um, to address Channing's question more directly, I've been, I've talked a lot about boundaries this year uh, particularly when it comes to making racism a costly experience. And uh, to Derek's point, I would simply say that if we are going to keep people from partaking of the t- sacrament for, I don't know, reasons related to the law of chastity or the word of wisdom, then we definitely need to be making the sacrament unavailable to people for racism and for homophobia and for sexism. Just in my mind, I want us to be consistent in that regard. Otherwise, we stop prohibiting people from partaking of the sacrament. Like to Derek's point, and I feel like this is what he was saying, I want us to be consistent if we have to be insistent on restricting the sacrament from certain people. Like I don't want somebody to be prohibited from taking the sacrament because they had a sip of alcohol and they're trying to do better, whereas there are people who are unrepentantly posting Candace Owens videos and they get to take the sacrament. Like that is something I would take issue with. And also to Channing's point, my whole thing is I just want I, I just want bigotry to be costly. Like if people are unapologetically embracing some form of bigotry, then that needs to have a consequence. And uh, I really agreed with Christ in this when he said that don't suffer anybody to knowingly, unworthily take of the sacrament. And that's not something that I'm putting on me. I'm saying somebody is forcing my hand when they engage in that. For example, right now in my life, my father is refusing to go to my youngest sister's wedding because she's getting married to a woman. 
I don't want to not have a relationship with my father because of that decision he's making, but he's kind of forcing my hand. At that point that he decides not to go to my youngest sister's wedding, he is choosing bigotry over his own daughter, and I have to do something about that. Not because I want to exclude him or because I want to punish him, but because I have boundaries. Like, that is the... That is the principle I'm trying to operate on. It's not that I love my dad less or that I want to exclude him. I just want to let him know this is a boundary you have transgressed. I have to enforce it because of my principles. I think that's Yeah. Am I getting am I getting warmer? Because like I, 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 I really feel what you're saying, Channing. Like my only issue is that if someone is unrepentant, that is where I start asking questions. That's where I start drawing lines. Yeah, Channing, I don't want to come out like I'm saying that you're wrong. Um, I'm just speaking from my experience, and each of us has a window from our perspective, and, and I'm right there with you with, with your concerns around that and inclusion. But I, I remind myself of this, this principle that in the mortal world where there's opposition in all things, it is not possible to say all are welcome or to make all welcome, and here's why. If the sheep, if I invite the sheep and the wolves to dinner, the sheep won't be safe and they're not really invited. And in a body where people are coming and in a state of vulnerability where they need to be safe, if you have racists, if you say everyone's welcome and racists are welcome, then people of color may not be safe. If you say homophobes are welcome, then I won't be safe, right? And so you have to choose. Are you going to, are you going to, choose my view is because of the opposition and all things you we're gonna have to choose are we gonna center the needs of the privileged or are we gonna center the marginalized and i just choose uh for me the marginalized because i don't know of any other better way i would like to say all are welcome but i don't know how to do that i would like to say all lives matter (laughs) oh that tasted awful coming out of my mouth ah i need mouthwash i really i really appreciate um you both being willing to sit with me in that discomfort because you've given me a lot to think about. And I'm really incredibly grateful because yeah, like I said, it gave me a lot to think about. So I appreciate you being really patient with me and also gentle with my questions. Cause I'm, I'm still learning. And I also too, just want to point out to our listeners that that's the whole point of this is to discuss with each other and talk with each other and ask hard questions and maybe be a little bit embarrassed about not knowing everything because I definitely don't and being open and willing to learn from others so that we can get to that place where we have understanding and safety and welcoming for the Comfort for the afflicted and affliction for the comfortable. I really like that. So thank you both for being willing to help me figure it out. And uh, yeah, thank you both. And thinking about your comments too, I wonder if we can say still all are welcome. And yet when you don't welcome others or when you afflict or run your mouth, like then there are consequences. And one of the consequences is then you don't, if you're excluding the body of Christ, then you don't get to participate in the ritual of being welcomed into the body of Christ. All are welcome, and yet there are like there are consequences for those who um, dehumanize or exclude. Yeah, and 
I just want to name one other thing that I thought of, and it's one of the sort of central ways that liberation theology typically flows is it starts out with concrete praxis, like what are we doing, what is the action, and then it moves into a reflection on the praxis in light of the Word of God, in light of whatever analytical tools you have, and then you reflect on the praxis, and then you fold that pra that reflection back into the praxis. And so I think there's room for for navigating this of like asking questions about why do we that that gets to what James was saying, like why do we exclude people from the sacrament who are violating the word of wisdom? Why aren't we? And then we ref uh, why aren't we excluding those who are engaging in racism? And so we reflect on that praxis. And then think about that in light of these texts, and we wrestle with it, and, and there may not be an easy answer. And that's really where the hard work of, of theology is, is the easy answers everyone can do, but we have to wrestle with these hard ones and then fold that reflection back into a renewed understanding of our praxis, and then it actually changes our action. Thank you all so, so much for joining us today for this episode's conversation. And we are so, so grateful and appreciative to our friends and brothers at Beyond the Block for joining us today, making this conversation so important and so impactful. So before we close out, do you guys want to say goodbye and drop your socials? Tell us, tell the people where they can find you. Yeah, so you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Thank you so much for hosting us. I hope that some of your listeners may, may discover us. And um, we're also on Instagram, Facebook, and we're also, well, where else are we? We're on Twitter, too. On Twitter, yes. We're on Twitter also. Coming soon to Snapchat and Cameo and... TikTok. Uh, yeah. All YouTube. The, all the young people stuff. Our handles, by the way, on, BT, uh, on Twitter and Instagram are at BTBLDS, like beyond the block, BTBLDS. Perfect. We'll link to those in our show notes and in our Instagram post, too, so that... All of our followers can find you guys super easy. And the good news is we've got more collaborative episodes like this planned for next year. So keep an eye out because we're going to be combining more because we love these guys. Thank you all so much for listening and joining us today for this episode. We look forward to talking with you next week. Bye. Bye.